do you think that the African uh, American narrative is contributing to the historical trauma that they experience today? Okay, well, I don't, um, if I estimated that the African American narrative is not pro American and not pro capitalism, I did not intend to intimate that. Uh, if, that's what, if that's what you gathered, that's not what I meant. What I did mean is that the African American is acutely aware of its own progress in American history, understanding that he went from being three fifths of a human to fighting for his citizenship and being able to vote and do things now. And we're very, as a community, very aware of that trajectory and have no interest in moving backwards, but want to move forward. So that would be what I would say about that. Does the, the, one of the, you, you mentioned there um, about, see, you, you're, what was that first point you were talking about? The universal versus universal. Yeah, universal slavery. So, you know, uh, I love America, and, and again, um, uh, but America did slavery the best. The America, America said, well, we made American slavery, chattel slavery, different than the rest that you've read in the Bible, the sort of slavery that we read about the Jews in Egypt, and, and, and the sort of slavery that happens as countries conquer other countries, and so forth and so on. What made it different is that um, there was a theological, psychological, scientific, and uh, anthropological category that, that blacks were put in. Significantly, the first being, hey, you're not even a human. You're three-fifths of a person. No, there's no there's not many other slavery contexts where they took a person and said, hey, you're not a person at all. We're gonna treat you like a horse. And so that's completely that 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 one thing creates an asterisk on the American slavery experience as opposed to the general slavery experience. Listen, slavery has been bad in many ways across the world. I'm not a fan of it in any context, but there's there is and there's no slavery Olympics. We're not trying to figure out who had it the worst. Well, we're, what I'm just is, de describing is the distinctness of the American slavery story, that that personhood was stripped um, from, from, from those individuals who were brought over. And that does make it rather distinct um, from, from just being the product of conquer.
But you're, you're talking about heart issues. You're not talking about head learning. You're not talking about head learning. Uh, you can go talk about all this you want uh, in a curriculum, and but you, you, you're talking about changing hearts. You, the, the looks, the uh, the uh, the shoulders, the turnaround, the uh, uh, eyes. You're talking about you're talking about hard issues. So I do not see any curriculum that is going to or should change hearts and and be graded. Did your heart change? Oh, let me see. Uh, a teacher is going to say your heart changed. I, I can't see what you're talking about if I understand it right. How a curriculum would change a heart. Well, let me let me bring something that I was looking at. My notes are all over the place. I do apologize. But we recently passed something at the state level uh, for Holocaust remembrance. It's a uh, Unanimously, all our legislators voted for it, and it was in efforts to uh, educate our children so that they would remember what happened, so they wouldn't repeat it, and that they would value human life across the board. Curriculum was created, resource banks were created, training for teachers was created, and that was just last year. So if we have the ability to create curriculum that tugs at the heartstrings, because we know that does, um, and it's across the pond, so I don't have to be held accountable for it. But I can teach you as a child that this happened. This was human actions that inflicted genocide against six million people. At 1864 million, almost five million blacks were owned by less than 400,000 slave owners. That's a lot of folks that were accounted for. Um, so talking about curriculum, we have the capacity. We have. Um, the, the State Board of Education, we elect our, our representatives on there. We have wonderful teachers like you that have created homeschooling curriculum. This is not outside of the bounds of our intellectual capacity. So think, it's not necessarily, I'm gonna teach you to change your heart, but I'm gonna teach you so that you know where we came from and have a little bit more understanding of the world. I, I, I agree with you that you can, uh, you can do things. I, I did an underground railway, because here I'm at home, I'm homeschooling, I had, we had over 100 acres. And so we had children, our children, they're all white, that they are dressed as slaves, they are picked up and they're carried uh, like they're taken in a wagon, but we didn't have wagons, we just had station wagons. And so they are taken to our neighbor's homes and they have to make their way back. And, but I had, I had friends that had horses uh, and they rode the horses as slave hunters. So, I mean, I gave them an experience of what it was like to be chased if you were a runaway slave. So uh, well, you can do that, but you can't change a person's heart. I just, uh, I'm just gonna stick with that. And so, uh, is it the school's duty to treat, uh, you asked earlier, Cody, was it the school's duty to teach what you said? Activism. Uh, to teach activism. Is it the school's duty to uh, teach changing the heart? Or should that be at the church and in the home? I mean, is it, should that be? So I'm, I'm just saying that we've, we've, we've morphed a long, a long way from what I thought we were talking about, just educating, you know, and how we can educate. Okay, so let's bring it back. Okay, if you will turn your uh, mic off, please. <laughs> Antoine, you have the floor. Um, uh, first of all, I think that's an amazing thing that you did. The, the, the underground railroad thing. I think that's, uh, I think that's, uh, I'd be very, oh, thank you. I'd be very interested in seeing um, what your students thought about that and, and what they learned from that. Um, I think when we, we cannot teach, I agree with you, heart is a, as a Christian, heart is a God thing. Exactly. And so we're not going to teach, uh, we're not going to teach transformation. But we certainly can teach our children what we're proud of and what we're not proud of. Uh, we can show our children what we're happy when we, when we see it and what we're not happy about. When we, when we, when we see something um, historically, we can show that his, this thing happened historically and this is not how, what we want you know, this is who we want to be as a, as a country. And, and teaching that sense of, um, that sense of uh, pride of, 
uh, and setting the vision for who we want to be as a country um, and showing what we're proud of and what we're not proud of can contribute to the critical development of an individual child to say, okay, we understand what, what we like, what we don't like, what we approve of, what we don't approve of, and, um, and in that sense, we can help develop a, 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 critical, a critical thinking of young person. Um, so I don't know that everything, again, 100%, you know, Christ changed hearts. Uh, and so, um, and, and, he, and he does it without our help, you know. And so I understand, I understand where you're coming from with that. Uh, and yet, I'm grabbing my child and I'm telling them when they do something that I'm not, that, that's not who we are in my family, I say, hey, we're Malone's so and we don't do that. That's not, who, that's not who we are. And in so doing, I set an expectation for them to deal with and grow with and try to wrestle with at some point. And you're saying that that happens in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the home. But I'm saying that throughout the teaching of history, there's something about the American landscape that, that says, hey, we as a country are the land of the free, home of the brave. And when these things happen, when we act heroically, we cheer. And when these unjust things happen, this is not who we want to say we are. And I think that met, that meta-narrative can exist um, and can be that ground, uh, that uh, that foundational groundwork uh, can 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 be contributed to by the educational system. And perhaps should be. Uh, Okay, so um, I've got another question via text, and then if this gentleman up front here still would like to ask his question, we'll go next, okay? Um, I'm not, well, let's just, so would you agree that if students discuss examples about implicit bias and how racism exists in America at an age-appropriate level, would there be need or not need for any legislation regarding that? Who is the question? Is there not current uh, standards stated by the, the governor of the United States that we can't do that within the classroom at this time, starting in September? I believe there is a law that is in the process of being signed, yes. Uh, uh, House Bill 3979 currently states that implicit bias training cannot be mandated. Uh, so uh, that's current. There's, no, well, it says social studies, but pretty much anywhere. And the new bill that they're working on, SB3, I think it is, would be across the board. And, you know, for the record on that bill, it doesn't say implicit bias as an interpretation, but it does create the need for a classroom to not to mandate any real race-based teaching, and if it is engaged, if that race-based teaching is done objectively, which does achieve what, what, what you're saying. I just want to just want to state that implicit bias is not a part of the actual law language. So I I actually have one page from that bill uh, because I found it interesting when it says uh, I found I looked at it relative to a question that was posted from the uh, Frisco ISD where the entire English department at Memorial High School conducted a CRT exercise with every junior English class. They chose 10 kids from each class and asked all to stand side by side. Then they told students to take one step backward or forward if they matched certain criteria. And one of those questions, among others, was if you are a white male, take a step forward. Uh, and it goes on. At the end, the teacher said, now look at who is ahead and who is behind. Those in front have started out with advantages compared to those in the back. So I assume the English part of that will be in um, writing about it and exploring ideas about it and maybe disagreeing with their teacher about it. But that's a very risky idea. That takes a lot of guts and critical thinking to say, no, this is not a good demonstration of that. You lose points. And sometimes it's not worth the fight. Uh, because it matters in a junior year with what grades you're gonna get and get into college. One of the um, HB 3979, page five, uh, issue mm, seven, says that uh, a school may not require or make part of the course the concept that an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of the individual's race or sex. 
Again, we're talking about a time period when the psyche is growing, when you have people learning about themselves in relationship to others, in making friendships. And I think this kind of activity does more harm to break those about uh, apart than it does help some learning of it. When I was in college, when I was teaching in college, I had people work in groups all the time. They were the most uh, mixed race groups and, and sex groups you could imagine. They all had to work together because I was the enemy and they were the team. If they didn't pull together, they were going to fail. And so they worked together. They took pictures at the end of the semester. They became great friends because they needed to pull together their talents and their resources to make it in that class. Just talking or touching on your first point about the uh, privilege walk that they conducted. Um, you know, it's funny, in Judaism, the Torah teaches that poverty is a cycle. And you might find yourself at different points in that cycle throughout your life. And uh, we, we've all heard the phrase, uh, success is not owned, it's leased or rented, and the rent is due every day. And, and that's kind of the a philosophy in that uh, circle of poverty. And the beauty of America is, you could be a wealthy white person and end up, uh, you know, broke uh, one, you know, the, the next day. And you could also be a poor kid in Detroit that just goes to the public library, and you end up one of the greatest neurosurgeons in the world, uh, Dr. Ben Carson. Um, so, you know, America is a place where you can find yourself or work your way towards any point in that cycle. But that cycle does require. Uh, personal responsibility, but this this is a country where through personal responsibility and discipline you you can achieve and find yourself at any one of those points. I guess my question for Miss Lydia when she talks about black kids the black kid experience and being excluded. And I really wanted more clarification because from my point of view and my experience growing up, it's the black kids who grow up and their parents are fortunate to have them to grow up in an area where they have resources versus the kids, black kids who grow up who don't have the resources. These kids, these black kids, they grow up with resources. They feel that they're just like the white kids until racism happens. It teaches them that you are no better than the black kids over here without the resources. So when you, when you talk about those type of things and people being dragged into certain areas, like they have to realize that they're woke, well, it's a part of educating those students that, although you may seem like you've made it, all it takes is for one, one person, whether you're white, Hispanic, whatever power position you are, they can take whatever you have away. So I don't understand how you equate that to saying that critical, this critical race theory should be taught, okay? First thing I would just like to say is, it shouldn't even be called critical race theory. It's American history. And American history should be taught, regardless of how you feel about it, or regardless of how ashamed, ashamed you are about it. We can teach about the Holocaust, which did not happen in this country. We can have museums that can show hundreds of thousands of shoes of Jewish kids that were killed, slaughtered. We could talk about how America financially benefited from the Holocaust. But you don't want to talk about the strange fruit. When I talk about the strange fruit, the black people hang from trees. You know, you don't want to talk about the black men who were killed just for looking at a white woman. See, we're not asking for you guys to teach that in K through 12, but you can teach who was the first black inventor. You can't teach 
who was the first one to come up with the, with the motorized buggy? It wasn't Ford. You can't come up with who taught, who made the stoplight, who actually made the light bulb, who made the traffic sign. You know, you can talk about Benjamin's Daniel. See, there are a lot of other efforts that black people have made in this country that are not talked about in K-12. And the first thing you guys want to mention is Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was not our savior. You have to deep down, dig deep, deeper, deeper than MLK. And I think that this conversation from Mr. Cody, Ms. Lydia, and some of what you said, Ms. Jessica, it's really biased and your opinions are not open. Your opinions are really not open to me because the things you guys are saying, it dismisses me. I grew up, single parent family, no father in the home. I still graduated from college. Yes, it was my will to keep me going. But I had so many obstacles, so many, that your kids won't have. A lot of y'all kids won't have. That I had to overcome. And even now, as a 45-year-old man with an MBA, I am still affected by what happened 60, 100 years ago. Institutional racism, it's a thing. Whether you're looking at the judicial, you're looking at housing, you're looking at voters' rights, all this stuff is being done. Why are they, why are they working so hard to, 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 to put these voting rights laws in, to, to stop people from voting? It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not to say, hey, we're American, we're going to keep going, no. But I just want to understand how can you not see what's going on in this country now and not say that it would not be this way if it was not for the, the past. I don't know your name. Uh, I'm Jacoby School. Thank you. Hi, Jacoby. How are you doing? I'm fine, and I want to say I know that history. But there's history that I don't know. And I just learned that I don't know the impact of the African slaves in the Civil War and in the War for Independence. You know, uh, how much the role that they played that was instrumental. And I'm like, why did I never hear about Reverend Hoosier and what he did and how he helped the people that led to Indiana calling it the Hoosierville, the, the, the Hoosiers. So I'm mad. And that just happened this summer. What, what happened to my history that I didn't know about these people? And I can tell you, Woodrow Wilson, had a big impact on that. Because he wrote a definitive five-volume history of the War of Independence and left out every black story on that. So yeah, we have a lot of problems going forward. I don't negate that. I don't debate that. I agree with you on that. And I'm better off knowing and exploring further what's happening. I've studied, um, oh darn, his name's gone now. Uh, I think it's Theodore, I forgot the last name, but it has to do with being a medical professional. He built hospitals in the Jim Crow era. He built uh, a black man who just went out and was able to succeed. Nobody hears about him. Uh, they talk about Ben Carson, but there's others all the way around that we've lost. We've lost the fact that black people used to have their own uh, what do you call it, um, civil society groups, individual associations like the brothers and the, the, with the Fez hats and that kind of things, these social clubs, they were self-insuring agencies. They used to insure themselves in case of injury to work and they had to have time off to have things. That was an organization that helped them prosper. By the way, the whites had their own too, okay? So- We had to go out because we couldn't join theirs. Yes. They did, so you know, but you had, but that's what your doctors were able to be in those clubs and work as doctors treating. That was the first medical program. So there's so much in history that we've lost that is not being taught, and I agree with you on that completely. Um, I think that there's a role for that, but then I would ask you, 
what would it look like from a student's, what would a student have to demonstrate when they finish their high school? How would they have to be different? What would they have to show that we're moving towards ending racism? When I mentioned the case with my mother, um, I didn't say that we didn't need a law, but the law follows common law in, in most parts. And the common law was that people were becoming accepting, you know, neighbor by neighbor, accepting of this interracial marriage, and then the law could come through uh, on it. When you try to make laws that come before the acceptance, you end up with a lot of problems. And if there's time, I'll discuss some of the problems that have gone on with affirmative action that have reduced the number of STEM uh, uh, students who've gone on to black programs. It's a crime. It's a big crime. Did anybody have anything else they want to add on that? Okay, I have another. Well, actually, I have two final questions I think I'm going to ask, and then we're going to wrap it up, I think. We're running, it's just after 8.30. Okay, so the first one is going to be directed to Cody. Has hard work always been the main driver of success in this country? And I'm going to assume that means for everybody. And was there a time that that was not true, and if so, when did it change? There's a lot of levels to that question. Um, I mean, nothing happens without hard work. Um, you can look at history and say, absolutely, hard work is what built this country. The, the, I think one of the points of the question is who's hard work? Um, you know, obviously there was a time where that hard work was done by people that were owned by other people. That's, that's history. Um, if we, you know, we, we've got to ask ourselves, which part of history are we talking about? Because who was working hard when and where? You know, the, the Chinese were working hard when they were building the railroad from San Francisco trying to go across the continent um, or across the country. Um, you know, and with them was black free men, with them was Irish and, uh, yeah, Irish and Scottish. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of different people that work hard uh, throughout this, our history. And so, yeah, I think, I think uh, hard work is a really big uh, part of it. And then when we talk about today, how, what role does hard work play or if you can succeed without hard work? Um, when I was in high school, the running thought was, or what people would say, you know, the, the days of who you know are over, it's about what you know. Everybody's got to get a college degree. That, that was a big thing. High school's not enough. You had to get a college degree, and once you got out of college, you said, well, if you don't have an advanced degree, then, well, your, your college degree is the new GED. And then I got into the work world, and I realized, no, it's, it's who you know. So uh, much more than what you know. And I, I think people look around now, and credentialism, and um, college education it is not held in as high regard. It's still not high regard, but um, you have people like Charlie Kirkett going out there saying, do you really need to go rack up 60,000 in debt for college education you're not gonna use when you can go learn a trade that's gonna pay you more than that job of college education with no debt. And so, um, you know, that, that's where I say hard work oftentimes is uh, gonna be the best way to have an outcome. And when you work hard, and it's not about who you know, and you may know, so you're gonna meet some people if you work hard, you know, that's gonna happen. And, and you also have to decide what people you wanna surround yourself with. Because uh, that's going to dictate, if you try to control your environment as much as is in your power, you're going to also control some of your outcomes. And so um, when you do that, you're going to be around better people, you're going to have more success. And when you work hard, what you do, your experience, it can't be taken away from you. When you just rely on who you know, or as some people would say, privileges, privileges can be taken away. Experience, what you know, what you can do, that's not something anybody can take away from you. Well, I was going to let anybody else that might have something to add. That's my phone number up there. If you want to text me, I'll be happy to ask that anytime. Anybody else on the panel have anything to add to that? So, working hard entails having a dream, having a goal. And yeah. I, I really want to stress the importance of not taking away people's goals by making them. Uh, do other work. I was on a National Science Foundation 
uh, committee to allocate $5 million to five schools to improve the number of PhDs in the, in the STEM field. And we had to make picks about all of these different universities that had thick, thick applications for this money. And almost every single one of them said, well, what are you going to do to increase the number of PhDs? How many do you think you can have that are produced now when you have five million bucks? One, two, well, what are you going to do? What's the plan afterwards to increase it? We're going to take these new PhDs of black students and take them with us for dog and pony shows. They didn't put it that way, but that's how I saw it. They're going to make them go around and talk to other students and encourage them to get into STEM and tell them to, to make it um, as they did. But that's cheating those new PhDs because every minute of their time should be in doing research and building their career, not producing new students. That's a byproduct. It's not to take away their time. So when we talk about working hard, if you work to a goal that you aspire to, it's because you have a purpose, you know, a, a God-given purpose. And I hope that we're encouraging our people to follow that purpose, something larger than itself, something bigger than what's going on. That's the, the heart and soul of being human. And I don't like it when we take that away. Anyone else? Well, a couple, a couple quick things. Number one, the question asked about is meritocracy the only indicator of success? I don't think that was the question. Was, it, was that not the first, the first part of the question? It's, the wording was, has hard work always been the main driver of success? Main driver of success, okay. Yeah, I can I see where that would be interpreted that way. Yeah, but. so apologies for, for misunderstanding that. Um, I would say, though, you said it well, the who's hard work. Uh, looking throughout history, I think we found that there's a lot of people who benefit from other people's work historically and today. Um, there is investors, there is, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into, into, the, into the system, and I'll pause there. Let, let's just, just with regard to, with regard to with, with meritocracy, let's say it's an element. It's an element. Um, I know a lot of hard workers who, um, if we were to sit down and try to put a qualitative number next to hard work, measure it in hours of effort, put a dollar next to it, that they'd be rich if it was constant and if it was fruitful in that way. The reality is that hard work is part of it, and, um, but not the whole thing. Agency, which we talked about repeatedly today, especially as it pertains to this idea that critical race theory pits oppressors against oppressed, um, is, an over, is an overstatement, and I, and I hate that oppressed is the language. Because I understand that oppressed creates extreme pictures. Um, but I would rather say uh, things that are normal and things that are not so normal. Let me give a quick example. I was giving this example all the time. I'm a basketball player. Hello, stereotypes. No, I'm a basketball player. And so we go to a basketball court, um, and, and I'm looking to pick my team on this court, right? Pick up game. I haven't seen anybody play. I knew I jumped in and like, hey, you got next to the team. I'm looking at the people in front of me, there's, there's some normal traits that I expect to see in what I would consider a good basketball player. You guys can probably name them. Tall, athletic looking, um, race might even fit in there. Some, some people might say black or white. Sex might fit in there, male or female. I've got a group of 20 people in front of me who are tall, short, male, female, black, white, skinny, not so skinny. Talk, right? <laughs> this is the list in front of me. Now, how do I make my decision? Well, I make my decision based on a norm that I have in my mind. I make a prejudgment. Doesn't make me a bad person, but I do make a prejudgment based on where I am and based on what I understand and what I need. So I might pick the tall white guy, expecting him to shoot and hustle. And I might pick the short black guy because I expect him to be quick. And I don't pick the short white girl because I'm not sure that short white girl is really good in basketball, right? But that's the only thing I have to go off of. Right? Now, those people who didn't get picked could raise their hands and say, hey, I was oppressed. Would we call that oppression? I'm not sure we'd call that oppression. 
What we would call it is someone walk into a situation expecting a norm for the situation, and the people who exist outside of that norm gonna have to prove that they are an exception to what the norm is. So I might not pick the short white lady. My, the, the other team does. And, oh man, she's out there. I'm gonna say soft set. You didn't guess what I'm But she's <laughs> she's out there like she's the best player on the court, right? And you're like, wow. And why do you say wow? You wouldn't say wow if the black guy was shooting. You say yeah, that seems about right. But the but the but the short white lady, you're like wow, what an exceptional thing. She's abnormal. She's got to overcome not being picked. She's got to be not good but better, right? This isn't oppression. This is just understanding that there are environments that establish norms, and some people fit into those norms, and others do not. I don't know that I would call those things oppression. This is my problem with the language of critical race theory and, 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 and this particular aspect of it. But I do think that society expects certain things. If you, if you order a plumber to come to your house, and a female shows up in a cheerleader outfit, you're going to need some credentials. Does that make you oppressive to this young lady? No, it's just that she's abnormal. So when she shows up and shows her car, she just clear drains or whatever she might say. Or, or she gives her a story that says, hey, you know what? The guy that was going to come couldn't come. I was at my, my, my thing and I had to come over and dress. Whatever it is, she's overcome the abnormality. And so black people are teaching their children that there is a kind of norm often in society. And there's these sets of norms. And if you're going to break through those norms, you need to understand that you might have to push a little bit more. You might have to explain your story. You might have to be more exceptional in order to create that. It doesn't rob them of agency. It actually prepares them to fulfill their agency. It says, if you want to get here, here are the paths and the challenges to that. You're going to have to face those. Now, the other side of that the parent is doing is saying, hey, we want to remove those obstacles, so we would love to be wrong. Tell us, we're telling you, hey, you might have to fight some racial, racial profiling, some racial underestimation, so forth and so on, but if we can fix it on the other side to where that doesn't show up, that's all the better. But the one doesn't mean the accent of the other. You're, I'm telling my children to run and do just like all the rest, and I grew up in a black community, and we were told that. No one ever robbed us of agency. No one ever told us, hey, because it's going to be tough, you should do nothing. You should wait for someone to give to you. That's never been the deal. It's always been, hey, you might have to run a little bit faster. You might have to run a little bit harder. Hey, short white girl, you might show them you can play. Otherwise, you might not get picked. And that's just normal. That's society. That, I don't know if that's nefarious. And again, the other part, I'm, I'm done. The other, part of race, <laughs> the other part of critical race theory is that it creates this nefarious villain. Maybe it's not so much a nefarious villain, it's just the way we deal with society. And we've got to learn how to navigate it in such a way that we lift everyone up and eliminate the people. So, Antoine, I want to comment on that because uh, now you're, you're speaking on what the economists study, and that's the role of information and the role of prejudgments about the situations. You know, if I told you there's a lion at the door, you're not gonna go out and say, well, I think that one's nice. No, you, we all go out the other door, right? So we use our pre-information uh, when we need to. So you described it perfectly. Uh, and I can give you an anecdote about that. Women used to go to car lots to go buy a car. <laughs> and what were we told? Oh, honey, go bring your husband home and then we can go over here and we can talk about it, right? Like, bring your husband, then we'll talk about the car. Because you know, women don't know anything. Well, that lasted until the you know the salesman started losing money. And one guy who took that chance and said, "You want a car? Okay, well let's go talk about it. Let me take the chance. Let me take the risk." And as he succeeded, because he risked uh, that stereotype, capitalism. He wanted more money. He needed to sell a car. He took the chance, not because he was you know enlightened. You know, he just needed more money. And so, yes, that is how stereotypes end. I went into, you know, after I got my PhD, I threw on some clothes, gym clothes, and I looked like a Latina, okay? So just really modest, let's put it that way. Went in to buy a big bag, expensive bag. And the guy that was selling it to me was telling me about the, 
we've got the credit card and the, the charging it and all these other fees and everything else. And I hadn't said a word because I don't have a, a Spanish accent. So I didn't say anything. I wasn't trying to, to fool him. But the minute I started talking, he said, wait, he, in his head, you could see. Uh, well, this is not who I thought it was. You know, she's asking good questions about the interest rate. She's asking uh, questions about the alternatives. And she's coming at me fast. And, and I don't know what hit me. So if there are more people like me out there, he's going to have to change his mindset, his prejudgments. If there's not, they'll say, ah, oh, she was a one-off. You know, I can go back to my stereotype. But that's how we evolve in society. That's the rate at which change takes place organically. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to make one comment. So in America, we've got a lot of black billionaires. And when you think about that, and you think about where is the best place in the world for a black person today, not in 1850, 1850 would have sucked, uh, been the worst thing ever to be a black person in 1850. Those are very terrible times. To be a black person today, where's the best country in the world? It's America. Where are they most prosperous? It's America. Um, are black, where are black people from Africa uh, migrating to? America. And so, despite all the flaws, and there are flaws in America, that's, I, I think everybody in this room, that's kind of a foregone conclusion, we understand the flaws of America. But it's not the flaws of America that are attracting people to come here, or by the hundreds of thousands on our borders. It's the, the promise of America, it, it's the um, American dream, and the prosperity of America that they're coming to. Because they know, even under the circumstances of our history, and even you know there's hate in some people's hearts, which is a feature of the human condition and is not unique to America or anybody's skin color, uh, that if they come to America, they have the highest likelihood of prosperity. That's, and, and I think our history has shown that, and human behavior has continued to prove that. You know there are more black billionaires in Africa than yeah. Right. Oh, oh, you should. Go ahead. Oh, right. Go ahead. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I would say. Yeah. I'd say to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I would say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm a black man. I don't want to be any other any other place. Again, this goes back to what I said to uh, uh, earlier. The critical race theory as a discipline to look at the laws uh, to determine their effectiveness on race relationships. Uh, we want to keep it in the right direction. Um, I don't think anyone on this panel is anti-evaluation. Um, and I also think that most African Americans believe deeply in the American dream. That's why, that's why we fight. I would say that um, I'm a very critical person, a perfectionist, and, uh, and I would say that, you know, I'm not very critical about things I don't care anything about. Don't ask me about a hockey team. I couldn't care less about hockey. I don't care how they play. I don't know anything about how they, I don't care about hockey. So why would I critique hockey? What do I care about? I do care about my children. I do care about my life. I care about these laws. And so I do want to invite them. I do want to make it the best. So the fact that we are good, better than good, you know, we're the best relatively, but we're still not optimized. We still can be better. And there's still problems to do. Progress is inspirational. So I think we can have pride and problems. And I think we can see those problems and move toward progress. I think those, those three things all can work together. OK, ladies and gentlemen. We have eight minutes before the clock goes long. And I'm going to give you all about a minute and a half to wrap up any final thoughts that you might have. And uh, Stacey, I'd like to start with you, if you don't mind. I think this was a really great dialogue. They gave a lot of different perspectives. Um, but my takeaways are that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But there's some really valuable opinions that are sitting up here that really can contribute to creating curriculum that is age appropriate, that provides hands-on experiences um, that really reiterate the pride that we have in our country by addressing potential problems that we still have and that we have had, that we have grown from, from but we still are battling, that 
um, stereotypes do exist, but it's not necessarily my whole responsibility to change your stereotype for me. Um, but educating my child on how to battle that uh, is important, not just for them, but for the other that, uh, person they're interacting with. We're all valuable members of our community, and no one has the right answer right now. But um, I still believe in local control. I still believe in parents playing a role in what uh, the kids are learning in their schools. Not everyone comes from a blessed family where you have a village raising your children. Uh, there's a lot of things that we're all encountering on a daily, and we do lean on our school for a lot of things. Uh, we underappreciate our teachers. We definitely underpay them. Um, and we put very high expectations on them. As we're looking at the state standards, because there are no federal standards for history, the state standards are, we're doing a little bit better than some of the other states in the, in the union. And that's something to be proud of. Uh, patriotism does come with pride, but it also comes with problems. Uh, and if we can entrust an 18-year-old to hold a gun across the, across the sea defending democracy, then I can trust an 18-year-old to learn the harshness of our, our history and to really grow from it and to impact that change. And if they're not the ones to do it, their neighbor might be the one to do it. We don't have the answers, but we sit in a place where we can help create those solutions. And I encourage everyone that's sitting here to find your voice, find what resonates with you. Your history is not my history, but it is our history, if that makes sense. I'm looking at it from my perspective, but your perspective is completely different. Your perspective is completely different because we're looking at it from our experiences gathering those experiences and creating something that's sound. When our students walk across that stage at the end of their high school, um, their, their secondary ed, and they've got that diploma and they're ready to head into the workforce, into higher ed, or into, or into society, they're better for what they've learned. Jessica, are you ready to jump in? You got some closing thoughts for us? I cannot hear. I still have closing thoughts. Um, Let it stand. Okay. Lady, would you like to go next? Um, how do you sum up this discussion? I, I guess I want to focus on what I would like to see a change in education so that we can have effective learning and understanding about the issues that we're talking about. And that means to reawaken the kids questioning mind. That means to give points for great questions. That means when you go home at night and you sit around the dinner table, your parents say, well, not what did you learn? What great question did you ask today? And if you get the kids to ask why, to open up the um, skeptical mind and say, really? To open up their creative mind and say, well, what if, what if it was different? That to me is learning when you get a kid who you look at uh, what William Wilberforce did to end slavery in Britain. You can teach that. Here's a fact. They would go on the scantron, William Wilberforce ended uh, slavery, in, in, and it would be a forgotten fact for it. But if you ask them, how could we have done that in the US? Was it possible or was war inevitable? You give them a question and you ask them to ponder and discuss it in groups. You know, that's learning that would give some meat to really developing the mind to consider the, well, what if we did it differently? I'll say that. Cody, I'll have you go next. I'm going to give Antoine the last word. Uh, so I'll say, um, you know, one of the critiques of CRT is the critique on how CRT views objectivity. And um, in Ibram X. Kennedy's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he talks about a college professor of his that says, objectivity uh, is just collective subjectivity. And one of the problems with that is, uh, as it goes in critical race theory introduction, it says that uh, Western philosophy is inherently white in orientation and um, Basically, Western philosophy is Judeo-Christian values in combination with Greek reason and thought. And so when you have those two things and you say Western philosophy is not a good thing um, and that it's, it's white and therefore it's bad, um, what we get from Western philosophy is uh, John Locke's uh, 
natural law. And natural law is the law that we view in nature and that that's nature's God. So it, it's observable God's law. That's where we get inalienable rights. And so, um, and so inalienable rights come from God, not from the government. And so if there's no objectivity and there's no Western civilization, therefore no natural law, therefore no God, any philosophy that can be distilled down to there's no God um, and everything is subjective, I think is a very dangerous ideology and philosophy and has no place in schools. Antoine, the last word is yours, sir. Uh, some quick thoughts I would like to leave you with is, number one, remember what critical race theory is and what it is not. Critical race theory is a legal discipline designed to look at legislative, uh, legislation and the effect it has on race and race relations. There's the conversation about race, and then there's critical race theory. If the conversation about race is Batman, critical race theory is a tool on Batman's belt. Critical race theory is not Batman. And it's currently being cast, maybe Joker's uh, opinion what you're talking about. But, uh, but, but it's being cast as the ultimate villain. It is a magnifying glass, a tool, uh, a grappling hook. It, it's the thing, it's the tool. So critical race theory is that when we ask it to do more, we confuse the conversation, uh, as I understand it. The conversation about race, which is where Abraham and Kennedy and all these other things are going to come up, uh, that's another conversation that we do need to further try to understand how we're going to deal with. And there's not clear answers for that. I, I suspect that this conversation has been a little bit about critical race theory and a lot of it about race conversation. I think the conversation outside of these laws, when they're about critical race theory, is still a little bit about critical race theory and a lot of it about race conversation. We should be careful not to let critical race theory lose what it's trying to do and be the evaluation, the evaluation tool that it is versus what uh, what what um, you know the, the conversation is about race um, as as a whole. I would also say this as a parting shot. Um, again, progress is inspirational. There is no fear in, in in the idea that we can teach our kids where we started, where we are, and where we're going, and to and to find their place in that journey. Uh, and that that's 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 positive. That's inspirational, um, and the race relationship, uh, the race relationships in America have hope in them. In that, when we get this thing figured out, when we get this thing figured out, imagine the story. We had this. We fought. We made progress. We fought. We made progress. We fought. We made progress. We did. That's the future we want to lay for our kids. You cannot lay that future in front of the kids without understanding the journey from where you've come. And all of us, white and persons of color. So I would encourage you to not be afraid of these conversations. It's an encouragement. It's a hopeful conversation. Something that we can grow into and be inspired by instead of being ashamed of and running away from. All right, uh, that wraps up our uh, forum guests. Um, I'm gonna let uh, Ms. Rachel Elliott uh, jump in here and give a final words. First off, I want to say thank you so much for our panelists. Can you give a this, this was beyond excellent. I honestly really enjoyed hearing so much. Um, and um, this, I'm able to walk away from tonight and learned a lot. Um, and I feel like I've grown as a person. And so that's what our goal here is McKinney First. We want McKinney to be better. We want McKinney to be learning. We want to understand. We want to grow together. We want to be a community that's caring about each other. And that's talking about the hard stuff. That's caring about the hard stuff. That's really digging deep. This conversation topic was not easy. It was not easy to pull off in the community, but it needs to be said. And so I'm really glad that we're here tonight. I'm really glad that um, we're able to do a live stream um, and Last time that we did a live stream, about 2,000, 3,000 people chimed in, and so we're predicting probably the same amount of just being able to talk to the community, um, kind of getting to the depths of it. So one of the big things that McKinney First um, PAC wants to do is more of this. We want to do more of better. We want to do more of understanding, and we want to do more for this community. For us to do that, we cannot 
be able to do this on ourselves, by ourselves. We've got to come together, we've got to care, we've got to be able to put our back into it and really go for it. And that's one of the ways that you can do that is by donating. If you go to McKinneyFirstPACPAC.org, there's an up right hand corner of donate. We cannot move forward, we cannot do more of this without um, you guys. Come join us, um, enjoy the fight, and um, join the opportunity to make McKinney better. So we're going to conclude tonight. Um, one more round of applause for the awesome panelists. Please drive home safely. Thank you so much and God bless. It is allergies. I don't know what it is this year, but I got it. Are we doing that?
Thanks, Antoine.